I, I remind you as I am about to introduce Malcolm in our first discussion on air since Mayor's passing that the person who introduced me and therefore introduced you, our loyal audience, uh, to Malcolm Honline was our dear friend, our mutual friend, the friend that we are mourning for this week after his after his sudden passing last Shabbat, Mayor Weingarten, Mayor Nahum Ben David. I remind everybody of that as I introduce Malcolm Honline, Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of major American Jewish organizations. We call this the weekly update. Mr. Honline, welcome back to JM in the AM. Thank you. Good to be with you. I hope that, uh, I hope you don't regret that years ago, Mayor Weingarten introduced the two of us. And uh, to start this conversation, obviously, your thoughts on somebody who's not just a dear friend, I know how close you were with him, uh, but in addition to that, somebody who is a dear friend and somebody who you watched as an individual make a tremendous difference in this world. In so many ways, it's it's almost impossible to go into. And um, I find myself very depressed ever since we got the word and I heard from you, Motsi um, Shabbos, about his uh, passing and the um, the large turnout of people and the... Um, the, the expressions that everybody uh, heard from a- anyone and everyone uh, echoed the same theme about who he was, what a person he was, and his humility, his intelligence, his love of Israel, Torah. His, his, I think he knows he knew more about Israel than anybody I know, yeah. and he um, and it, 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 he exuded his love for Israel to, to everyone and anyone. He was um, a very special person. And, you know, it's not the kind of guy who makes headlines. Right. But he has impacted so many lives in so many ways that we heard there and since talking to other people in a very quiet and, and uh, humble way, but really a phenomenal person. Malcolm, I and, and we will get to the news, folks. Don't worry, we will get to the news. Uh, Malcolm, um, I always use this opportunity, unfortunately, unfortunate opportunities, uh, to ask you to comment on the broader picture. Um, in 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 light of Mayor's life and uh, and the incredible accomplishments on behalf of our community and the state of Israel and so many families, as you heard, etc., over the last week, um, can you just speak to the point of what? difference one person can make, how literally one person can affect so much change, how one person can can in so many areas of life make a real difference? We see it all the time that it's the power of one, that one person impacts others who then join and they impact others still, and that the growing circle of influence, it doesn't just increase each time by one, but it's by multiples. And the progression is even greater when you have somebody like Mayer who quietly impacted so many people. When you saw the devotion of people in KJ, which was not his home synagogue, but the the love they had for him and the presence of Rabbi Lukstein and others, but to see how he impacted that community 
and the uh, you know he I actually introduced them uh, many years ago, and he organized their annual trips. Uh, I think for Sukkot and uh, sometimes I guess Pesach. Right. But more than that, it was when Israel was empty that they went and they you know to express their solidarity. And and he not only did he make the physical arrangements, but he went with them, and he would inspire them, talk, speak to them, and uh, be invited to them during the throughout the year because of the relationship he established and the impact that he had on them. And I can tell you that all of our missions for all the years that I did them uh, to Israel were were organized by his office. And um, and you know. We, I'm sorry to interrupt, Malcolm, but I'm worried about that. Your missions are historic. I mean, your your missions always include a country of great significance in terms of the future of Israel, right? You've always chosen the countries carefully because down the road you're thinking that this country might have a either a greater relationship with Israel or a relationship at all with Israel. And, of course, it included a an Israel component. And he was not just somebody who arranged the trip. Be you know to do the nuts and bolts for you. He took that as an avoda, as knowing that what you and the group was doing was important for the future of the Jewish people. Yeah, absolutely true. I mean, he, they went so far beyond, and his staff went so far beyond what uh, could be expected. And you know, when somebody who travels like I do, and I have to make last minute switches and last minute uh, changes in overseas travel. And never a complaint, never a, uh, you know, a, you never hear a crash from them. They were never keeping on the name like we read in this week's Parsha. You know, <laughs> not people who, who murmured or, you know, complained about it, um, as sometimes our people are wont to do. Um, it was always with smile and always asking how he could help with uh, any aspect of it. Yeah, lahagdil am Yehudi ulahadira. That's how I always loosely... Uh, use those uh, those words from that famous phrase, famous in another context, but I always say that uh, he knew the importance. And finally, and we'll get to the news, but last point, again, I, I like using these opportunities in memory of Mayor um, to, to address broader issues that I think parents and grandparents who are listening now uh, will hopefully uh, glean uh, from you, and and that is the important. You know, I'll never forget certain episodes that happened between me and you in the early part of our relationship that emphasized to me that that you understood the value of Jewish education. Obviously, everyone understands the value of Jewish education, how important it is for the future of the Jewish people. But I'm referring in this case to the advantage Mayer had that he was educated in Tanakh that he was educated in Jewish history, that he knew every detail of modern Jewish history and the formation of the, the establishment of the State of Israel, and, of course, Yom Yushalayim, the day most synonymous with him here in this studio, um, you know, over the years. And, and I, I, the, the reason I bring this up is I just want you to join me in reminding parents and grandparents, yes, piano lessons are important, ballet is important, and neither of us are minimizing it. But the knowledge of Tanakh and arranging for your children to be to hone their skills when it comes to history, Torah, Tanakh, Talmud, all the sources are so vital and so key if they're going to make a difference in our community down the road. So true, and a generation that so needs it. And the the inspiration that he drew as uh, somebody I could relate to totally when something exciting 
was found in Israel or something, you know, an archaeological discovery, and we should note that Elat Mezar passed this week. Um, she was in charge in, at the city of David of the, the discovery of what may have been the, the, the palace of King David, but more than that was known as the uh, archaeologist of Yerushalayim, and the amazing things that she did, and some that inspired Mayer, and you know, would uh, this generation would feel a lot more secure in their relationships? And it's you know, it's not a political issue. It's not any right. other things that might be an inhibition. Right, right. right. It, it's just it's so fundamental yep. that it's hard to believe that people don't just don't get it. By the way, <laughs> this story just came to me, but I got to tell it to you on the air because it's so great. Um, you do talk about Mayor's enthusiasm when a new discovery would happen or anything, anything of significance would, you know, seep into his life, into his experience having to do with Israel. And and, and you know what Harabayit meant to him. You know, right. you, you and I and many others were on a small plane with Rush Limbaugh flying from the Golan where they had taken us for the day back to, I assume, Atarod, right back to Yerushalayim. And... As the halacha uh, dictates, you're not allowed to fly over Harabayit. So Mayer arranged with the pilot, you know, to take the route that Mayer, you know, suggested, etc. Now, you had been, because of the nature of the trip, you're doing, you know, everything with Rush. And in addition to that, you were having a million other meetings. I don't know if you remember, I, but one of your meetings in that trip was with Uri Savir. Do you remember that? I don't know if you, yes, you I remember. do remember. And I say that because anybody who remembers 1993 <laughs> and that era... You can imagine the agony Malcolm was going through, wondering about the future of the state of Israel. But that's not for now. Um, and, and now, as I'm thinking, by the way, remember Mayor arranged for us to have that dinner in Yerushalayim in 2000 on that Friday night? And it was my one opportunity to ask you off the air about all the things you had done in your career that I was curious about. And for some reason, that Friday, even though you would never tell us anything, but that Friday night, you told us stories that I'll never forget. But anyway, that's a side point. Anyway, so we're on this flight, and we're avoiding Harabayit, but you could see Harabayit from the plane. In other words, we're not over it, but you could see it. We flew around it. Right. And you had not slept the entire week. But you fell asleep on the flight. Obviously, you know, you know how it is. I don't have to tell you. That's the only time you sleep is on the flight, right? So just about. So Malcolm's sleeping on the flight. I think there was even a blanket over your head. I'm telling you, I remember this like yesterday. And I'm sitting next to Mayor, of course, because we are going crazy about what we're looking at. And Mayor is saying to me, Should I wake Malcolm? Should I wake Malcolm? Should I wake? We're, we're flying over Harabayit. Should I wake Malcolm? Should I wake Malcolm? And you know, Mayor, you know, he's, first of all, probably Gezel Shana's in his mind. That's the first thing, right? That, and he knows how wiped out you are. And he wants to be respectful to you because you know how much respect he treated you with. And, and, and you know, and all this is, and, and we're having this back and forth, you know, wake him. And I, and I, of course, you know me, Mr. Wishy Washy. I'm like, I don't know. I don't know what to do. <laughs> and finally, Mayor says, <laughs> okay, I'm going to wake him. I can't give up this opportunity. <laughs> and he wakes you up. And, and he says, Malcolm, we're, we're, look look out the window. It's hard by. And you say to him, I appreciate you waking me. And believe me, I get the excitement that you're going through. But thank God I've had the opportunity to fly this route like 20 times before. So you should have just let me keep sleeping. <laughs> <laughs> well, people who fly, and I am going to be flying this weekend in Hashem to Israel, know that it's a dangerous thing that the, the, um, I, I fly, I enjoy flying only because it get more sleep than 
<laughs> I get it. I, I, I am telling you, I am telling you that, that when I, when, I mean, like you do a million times, I've done a couple of times the land in Israel and leave that night back to the United States. Stacy always says to me, at least you'll get a couple of good nights of sleep. <laughs> so, but anyway, that's what I remember from that trip. But I love how you point that, his enthusiasm. How, he's sitting there thinking, how can I let this opportunity go by without letting others view what I am looking at right now? Whoever, it is so spectacular. If people understand when, when I've even been on flights coming in from New York where they had to fly all the way to Yerushalayim and then turn around and come back to Ben-Gurion. And you fly around the, the Harabai. It's oh. so beautiful. It's so exciting. Unbe- yes, exactly. And uh, anyway, we remember Mayer at America's one and only Jewish Moments in the Morning radio program heard on listener-sponsored digital radio around the world, the web at NahumSegal.com and the NahumSegal Network, and of course on the beloved NSN app. And we say Jewish moments, and Mayer was obviously, I don't have to tell this audience, responsible for a lot of those Jewish moments that we've shared over the last 30 years. Malcolm, um, could, uh, could, I, I, could you describe, as only you can, the front, and I know that they're not nearly as influential, but still just the fact that it's in print tells us the attitude that's going on out there, and certainly it's online. Could you tell us what the front page of the New York Times today looks like, and can you tell us your reaction? I haven't seen the New York Times. I don't get it. Anymore. Oh, I, apo- I apologize. I sent you a screenshot of it this morning, so I'm just, I was just assuming that you saw it already. I apologize. But I'll, I'll, I'll therefore describe it, and, and you'll please comment. Give me a second, because I just think it's so important and a, a perfect way, really, uh, to kick off this conversation this morning, because we are so focused on the way the world is perceiving uh, Israel at this time. The New York Times has a um, almost the entire front page is dominated by photos um, with the headline, so to speak, right under the New York Times masthead. They were just children. At least 67 people under age 18 in Gaza, and they have every photo on the front page of the New York Times. Um, and two in Israel have been killed during this month's conflict according to initial reports. Um, They had wanted to be doctors, artists, and teachers. Uh, If I'm I'm reading this correctly, because it's very small, read their stories on page 16. So again, if you could imagine a photo of every one of the children that was killed, or excuse me, a photo of every one of the future artists and teachers that were killed in Gaza, and, of course, a mention in the headline of that piece on the front page uh, that two were also killed in Israel. Um, I know you haven't seen it. Do you have a reaction? Yeah, New York Times has become, has always been, and uh, is, is becoming worse and worse as a, a propaganda tool. Uh, the, um, the responsibility for the death of those children rests with one party, and, and that is with Hamas. They put those children purposely in harm's way to draw fire on them. The, um, the, the inability of the New York Times to distinguish between the arsonist and the firefighter, the, the inability of them to, to address any of the issues that have arisen during this conflict or in the past, is really astounding, and the, the distortions in the media, and the reason I stopped getting it because it just came to the point where it was impossible yep. to 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 stomach the. Even though I, I, I like to know what the enemy is thinking, right. 
and to, for them to extol somebody like Beinart and to to uh, you know elevate his uh, his writing and hosting uh, Tom Friedman, who's been back to some of his old tricks again as well. It's uh, you know it it says everything that needs to be said, and, and the problem is that we don't have. Uh, other than the Jewish newspapers, we don't have alternative media. The uh, Wall Street Journal obviously is is much more balanced than at least in the editorial pages uh, than the Times. But it, it's so pervasive at the Times, and it's just um, it reminds us why we have to do so much more to uh, counter this uh, overwhelming preponderance of hostile coverage. Not even it's. It, it, that it's not even a question of having some difference of view, that they turn these into propagandist machines against Israel, and to to see them um, pushing some of the lines of intersectionality and, you know, the linkages between causes that we're seeing. And for me, frankly, this is a, a really a watershed period, and a lot of it has to do with the role of the media. In, in portraying Israel, but it, it's not a, you can't put this genie back in the bottle. What we have seen, the anti-Semitism, the hostility that is being manifest, and the, um, the kind of uh, demonstrations, the assaults on Jews, I do not believe we can just say, we go back to the status quo ante, to, to the way it was before. In the same way in Israel, I think the relationship between Israeli, Arabs, and Jews will, will not go back to, to the, the days before living together. I speak to people who live in those communities, and I think that it's a, a change that will be with them forever. And, and that's what I think here, that the, the events of this period have been not what happened necessarily on the battlefield, and thank God Israel's casualties were limited, but it's because they invested in the Iron Dome, whereas Hamas and took the cement and built tunnels. They took the money and built uh, missiles and, and uh, launching pads and not didn't benefit their people whatsoever. And every time there was a conflict, they would rebuild Gaza and just enable them again to siphon off the money and to use it for their purposes and not for the benefit of the people. Um, you know, the very fact that uh, I think Sinlar's daughter uh, was taken to a hospital in Israel <laughs> during just now, this week. Crazy. Uh, I mean, it's, yeah, people, that will never, of course, see the light of day or the fact that, you know, pilots have aborted if they saw some children or somebody approaching, civilians approaching a site that was about to be taken out. And the pinpoint nature, the, the, they, you know, they mock some of the uh, claims, but that every military person you speak to will tell you is really astonishing. And no army fights with such a uh, moral level. And I, I don't know if you saw the, the Human Rights Commission for the first time created a permanent fact-finding mission regarding a single member of the United Nations. And they voted 24 to 9 um, yesterday to investigate Israel for alleged war crimes during the recent war and called for an arms embargo against Israel. And, you know, when people think about the countries who vote on this and who, you know, are passing judgment (laughs) on a country that was attacked consistently, constantly, that occupies not one inch of Gaza 
a, a message that you would not understand from anything of the coverage of the New York Times and was uh, acted with such amazing restraint. Uh, and the the uh, new call, which is uh, a ready call annually for an arms embargo against Israel, uh, th- this is in addition to that annual text. So it's not like, it's not like something that there was a vacuum and you didn't have this call. It was there anyway every year. But now you have a, a new text that says that, that countries should refrain from transferring arms when they assess uh, in, in accordance with the standards that there is a clear risk that the arms could be used in commission of a serious violation or abuses of international human rights, so which is only by their interpretation. And anything Israel does to defend itself, they automatically define in this way. And if you think about it, that Israel was subject to more resolutions than most of the um, real violators of human rights, etc., uh, combined. And it's, it's just such a, a, a reflection of the distortion and misrepresentations that take place, not just in the United Nations, but in so many places today, and the, the linkages that they created between different causes, the intersectionality, which we've discussed, and yep. people may wonder why, why, now you saw why. By the way, Malcolm, on this, uh, speaking of intersectionality, I think there's a lot of intersectionality between the, um, the messages that are uh, being conveyed uh, at these demonstrations and rallies that are taking place. I, 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 I'll limit my comments about the, or I won't use this forum to comment about national Jewish leadership and how there's an urgency to take to the streets as random uh, attacks on Jews are taking place. But, but call a vote in all seriousness. Let's be, I'll be positive, and I, and I know you will be. Call a vote to those communities that are stepping up where local leadership is working with local leadership of major organizations to, to take to the streets and to get publicity and to be seen on the nightly news and to support Israel. We need the Chizuk also, and our kids need to see that we're ready to stand up against anti-Semitism and for, the, for freedom and for Israel. So I, I, know, I know you join me in saying call, call a vote to all those that are arranging events and, car- and carrying through those events. Absolutely. As you know, somebody who organized more street events and public manifestations probably than anyone, um, I believe very strongly in that this is an important time to make it manifest and give a platform so that public officials must, not should, must stand up for Israel and the Jewish people. And if they don't, and if they don't do it in outright and strong ways, and not just uh, pandering statements, yeah. then... But by the uh, way, but I, yeah. I, 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 the pandering... St- I saw. I said this to myself last night at the rally of the Five Towns. The pandering statements now are all recorded. They're all on video. They're all on audio. And when someone refuses to stand up for Israel down the road, all you're going to have to do now is play for them their own recording of their Am Yisrael Chai and their own recording that we won't stand for this and their own recording that everyone has a right to be, you know, to be safe in public, uh, you know, on the streets of this country. So for people who think, oh, the guy or the woman is getting up and just, you know, saying the old traditional stuff, uh, these days I think it's, uh, it, it helps in keeping them accountable. Hundred percent. It's it's the um, one way that we get them to be manifest, and people should be collecting. and And it's not enough, you know, for them to say, "Well, we're against racism and bigotry in all its forms." They have to be specific and 
and that doesn't exempt him from saying something about how America has to stand with Israel. We see all these voices being raised. Um, both you saw it with Blinken's trip to the Middle East and right. other occasions where, where they're saying the most outrageous things, and uh, there have to be voices that counter it when they talk about conditioning aid to Israel or restricting aid to, uh, military aid to Israel. Uh, this is, you know, uh, something that that only the most fringe voices would have said, and yet you see members of the Senate and House now calling for those kind of uh, actions against Israel. Yeah, exactly. And, and on top of that, I'm so glad you brought that up, because on top of that, um, you're, you're seeing a, re- a real shift where the strength of public officials for Israel, for freedom, for anti-anti-Semitism is coming from local government officials. And again, and you don't have to comment on this if you don't want to, because I know you have to work with these people. But again, those who represent us in the United States Senate, I'm talking about New York, I'm not talking about Wisconsin or anywhere else in the country. I'm talking about New York, folks, a uh, larger Jewish community outside of Israel. Um, you know, the, those who represent us in the United States Senate, those who represent us in the United States House of Representatives, you know, people in leadership positions from New York State that we could count on in the past are just staying completely silent. So I'm glad to see at least that the local officials are sort of getting that vibe and realizing that they have an opportunity to step forward and be there for us. Yeah, the problem, though, is when they put up a statement and then get a little pressure and take down the statement. Right. Um, you know, there's no excuse for it. There's no uh, exempting people from a need to stand up at a time like this and to to uh, be consistent and honest about their, their views and getting them clearly on record against BDS, against some of the outrageous actions that are taking place. You notice that, that you don't see these condemnations of Iran, which continues uh. murderous activities, and uh, we don't even have time to go through yeah. all of the... Um, stuff that we're hearing and the the actions that uh, that they're that are taking place. Uh, you saw Egypt, you know, adopted a new policy regarding Hamas, restricting them. And President Biden had asked them actually to to limit Hamas's role in Gaza and to try to push the PA in the hope that that would at least get a more stable regime. And and because right now the trend is the reverse that Hamas would likely win in the West Bank and an election against the PA overall. And the um, you know the the fact that the, the the people on the front line are coming more and more to the recognition of who's the party they want to live with and that they can work with and they can trust, even opposed to some of those who share religious and cultural and other ethnic bonds with. Yeah, a lot of comparisons between the 2014 war and the most recent war. Uh, that are being made. Um, I wanted to get your comment about this because uh, one of the reasons it seems that people are saying, or experts, quote-unquote, are saying that there was no necessity for a ground attack is Israeli intelligence is so much stronger now that they could take out tunnels and targets in a much more efficient manner. I assume it's one of the reasons why, thank God, the death toll uh, for Israel was, was less than, I assume was less than last time, certainly less brutal and less severe, I think, than last time. Um, so it, it, would that be likely the biggest difference between today and seven years ago? So, uh, I mean, I think there's several differences. One is that the tunnel, the um, uh, underground capacity of Israel to protect its its people and the training that they go through, even little children and get in kindergartens, know that they have 15 seconds to get into the shelters. 
So the uh, existence of the shelters really makes a difference. And if you notice the uh, in Gaza, they also did the same thing. They invested in building underground facilities, but not to protect the people, but to protect their soldiers and their leaders who ran underground like rats. Israel bombed miles and miles of the um, of the tunnels, uh, and yet there still remains a lot of the infrastructure. The same thing zips up north in, in uh, south Lebanon, and that stretches all the way towards the border of Israel right. in Syria that people know. Um, Israel's uh, intelligence was spectacular, that they could find individual people and addresses. And not going in, I know it's a question many people raise and say, oh, you can't do it until you mm-hmm. go in. But going in was a, is a trap. They know exactly the, the things that have been planned and the uh, advantage that the enemy has when you cross into their territory and with all this infrastructure underground and with every house, every civilian house, virtually potentially uh, being a, a site for not only for launchers but for terrorists hiding out. And the uh, the danger that would have been uh, faced for loss of, of soldiers uh, had they gone in. So I think that given that and the fact that they were able to carry out a campaign by air, which will be a model for other countries to look at, and the use of drones, the use of other remote uh, capacities, uh, and there are things that we don't even know, some of the things that they use that are, are new and and. You know, what you think of it, that Israel faced over 4,000 rockets. Does anybody know 4,000 rockets? Unbelievable. And and when you look then at the damage, but, you know, hundreds of buildings in Israel were impacted by the rockets by the and the damage done. Yet, I don't see anybody running around looking at those pictures and saying, look how terrible it is that a terrorist organization attacked a democracy, uses their civilians as cover to attack civilians, the real war crime, and backed by Iran, and everybody, when they say uh, Hamas, should say Iranian-backed, Iranian-financed, Iranian-controlled Hamas, so that people understand the linkage, that this is not some sort of a civil defense organization, (laughs) you know, fighting a a power that completely withdrew from, from the territory. It's it's quite amazing, and under the cover of all this, you see that Iran continues its enriching at levels, as the head of the IEA said, enriching uranium at at levels that only countries making bombs reach that level. I mean, it's it's unbelievable that the United Nations, an own agency that's supposed to to monitor all this stuff. Uh, makes a statement like that, and yet they continue to negotiate with them and continue to talk about removing sanctions, which is what Iran wants most of all, and will never be an honest broker in terms of any deal that is made. It, it is true the administration hasn't rushed into it. Many people thought that they were, you know, they'd walk into Vienna and everybody would sit down and just sign away things. They are obviously involved in very intense negotiations. Um, but th- those negotiations continue, and if you read the Iranian press, they talk about some concessions or concessions that could be in the making. People shouldn't jump to to conclusions. What is a fact is that they're enriching at 60%, which is even that level you could make enough for a bomb, but it's only a, a technical step away from 90% enrichment, which is 
um, what is necessary for for a, a nuclear weapon. Do you do you the, think they changed their attitude at all over the last month because they saw Israel's firepower, or is it irrelevant to them? It, it's irrelevant. They they know and have a good assessment of Israel's capacity. Right. Uh, first of all, they're involved now in a presidential campaign, which is going to take place um, in June eighteenth to replace uh, Rouhani as the president and the um, you know the, the clearing committee the guardian council etc removed what were so-called moderates and I, I love it when I see that in the press because <laughs> nobody's a moderate amongst the candidates that get introduced and Raisi who's a very conservative very right-wing very extreme I should say um, who heads the Iran judiciary is now the the front runner. Zarif is, uh, was a candidate, and the polls show that he would have been decimated by a one on one with the Raisi. And remember that this could be a stepping stone to becoming the next uh, supreme leader. Uh, so it's somebody who has to be an Ayatollah, but it, it's um, it has a lot of implications. And supreme leader trumps president, I guess, higher position, right? In their hierarchy, yeah. Right. Um, speaking of uh, campaigns and elections, I mean, and I guess this is a fitting way to end because people want an update regarding the um, uh, process in Israel. Are we closer to a government in the state of Israel? Well, we're closer in the sense that the deadlines are approaching and, and that by Tuesday, they, uh, Lapid has to either deliver a government or give up the mandate. It could then go to the Knesset or, as many people feel, there will be a call for an election. There have been very intense negotiations going on throughout um, with Bennett and others. There's still the possibility of a government being formed between Lapid and Bennett and Sire and Gantz and some of the... I know they already assigned out the portfolios, giving merits and uh, labor uh, slots as well as... Um, uh, obviously, to to Sire and Bennett and Lieberman, right. so I don't know that that would really be a stable government. It doesn't sound it to me that they could uh, really function uh, easily. But the um, you know the desire to get rid of Netanyahu, they said that's a possibility. If if somebody else would legally could, they would easily have a, a majority because Sire and, and Bennett would go back. Mm-hmm. Others might coalesce with them. So it's still very much up in the air about what the outcome will be. There are many who say BB always somehow pulls a rabbit out of the hat at the last <laughs> minute, and and sometimes it's a tiger that they're pulling out, <laughs> and, and and we will see. But President Rivlin's term is coming to an end. There's also going to be the election oh, right. next week of uh, probably Bushy Herzog, Yitzhak Herzog, right. uh, chairman of the Jewish Agency, and the son of a former president. Not a bad, not a bad choice for president of Israel. No, very fine guy. Yeah, not a bad and, choice. A, and a unifying figure. I think he will be fine. Um, and that, um, so that even that becomes an issue because they, they're holding up something because he allegedly said something about a fellow member of the Knesset, derogatory comment, uh, and also because they have other fights going on about introducing legislation that would essentially eliminate uh, Netanyahu from running in the next election by saying anybody under indictment can't run. Uh, and obviously we could people are not anxious to put that forward. So you have a, it, it, it going on all the time while everything else is going on. You have these the internal 
political strife. But I'm sure we'll come out of it okay. Uh, Malcolm, the lesson for us this week, the mortality of uh, human beings and how one needs to use their precious time in this world as efficiently and as productively as possible. And to know what a difference each person can make. Yeah. And when they, it's not about ego, it's not about themselves, it's about the importance of the cause and for generations. And he leaves behind many generations that will remember him and honor him. Yeah, no question about it. I thank you again. Oh, so next week, from Jerusalem, or you'll be back already no. by then? No, I won't be. No, um, I, so next week we probably won't do it, but ah. the week after we'll be able to give a report on Jerusalem. All right, very good. So we'll speak then, and thanks so much. Have a wonderful Shabbos. Malcolm Holmline is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. As you just heard him say, that because of his travel schedule, we likely will not have a weekly update next week. If that changes, obviously we'll inform you, uh, and that means a weekly update will, please God, return two weeks from today right here at JM in the AM.